25 to 27. <laughs> it's 29. Not, 29 to 29. Okay. There, I, I thought since we were doing such a short space that you wouldn't mind if I talked a lot. Yeah. Oh, Faith doesn't like that. <laughs> Several things come together. First of all, he's just talked about, mentioned eternal life. He talks about the anointing with the Holy Spirit. He says that you want to abide in him so that you will have no shame at his appearing. So John is triangulating several things here. And it may not be immediately clear, you know, no shame gift of the Spirit, abiding, eternal life, and then righteousness, born into righteousness. If I stated the opposite, you know, you hide, uh, do not abide, you abide in death, you experience shame in his coming, you fail in love, and you miss righteousness. And so I think the the ideas here are very much interconnected. Um, And all of this is grounded then in John's picture of a lie and the truth. That is, uh, you don't believe, you know, the Antichrist who are among us, who are among them, they are liars. There is not the truth in them, but the truth is in you. And so John is giving them the understanding of how they can discern the Antichrist. Who are who are the authentic Christians and who are the non-authentic Christians among them? A lot of people make a big deal out of Johannine Christianity. And I think that's just a mistake because this set of terms that come together, I think you can find a parallel, the exact parallel in Paul. Paul will talk about that we are not condemned uh, in Christ. You know, this is the beginning of 8, chapter 1. But if you're found in flesh, you know, think here, death, then you are condemned. In fact, you are, and by condemnation, Paul doesn't mean a future condemnation. He, He means a present tense being condemned. And that, At the beginning of chapter 8 of Romans, he says that you're no longer dealing in death or dealing out death, uh, no longer subject to violence due to deception. And so I think that in both instances, they are detailing us the lie and how the lie functions. There's a lie, you know, you dwell in uh, death and imagine that it's life, you fail to love the brother. John says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. Anointing refers to what? The anointing you receive from him abides in you. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? This is the the topic, and that's very much Paul's topic in Romans chapter 8. And then he says something that should sound familiar to you. You have no need for anyone to teach you. You remember who said that? Oh, you know his name. His name is Jesus. (laughs) He said, 
when he promised the gift of the Holy Spirit that he will lead you into all truth. And it is a fulfillment of the prophecy that, you know, that each man will, uh, you know, uh, there's no longer a need <clears throat> to be guided by somebody else. His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. So how do, you know, the way we can talk about Christ's truth is over and against a lie. That is, it's not an abstract philosophical truth. It's not a, you know, there's all sorts of truths. But when we think about the truth of Christ, it means something very specific. It's the truth over and against the lie. And so you can see the two things over and against one another in the Christ and the Antichrist. Just as a lie, you know, may appear as an angel of light, so too these antichrists are confessing Christ. They're doing everything Christian, but they're liars, and the truth is not in them. And so uh, that's the danger. You know, it's not a, a lie that everybody can immediately apprehend as a lie. And so John is telling them, look out, because these people are liars, and there is no truth in them, but in you who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and who live up to John's three tests. You remember the three tests? The social, they fellowship, they do not disfellowship with the saints. The moral, they walk in the light as Christ is in the light, that is, in it, it's ethical. And the theological or the doctrinal, that they confess that Jesus, the man, is deity. That Christ came in the flesh, that he was God in the flesh. That is, that the Antichrist, the Gnostics, were denying <clears throat> that God had come in the flesh. They believed in deity. It's just said that they didn't believe deity could become flesh. <clears throat> and so the, the language here echoes a lot here again of the gospel the other books of John and it echoes specifically when Jesus in chapter 14 and 15 of John is promising the Holy Spirit Jesus says when the Spirit comes he will guide you into all truth John's saying that's happening now you've got it <clears throat> uh, if I asked you what is the gift of the Holy Spirit you've heard me say this so much that it's so repetitious that you've heard, you're so tired of hearing it but you can just shout it out. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Life. Life. Right? <clears throat> there are many gifts of the Holy Spirit, That the gift of the Holy Spirit is the unrestricted presence of God in which our life wakes up. Uh, we become entirely living. We're endowed with the energies of life. That here is eternal life. Uh, that here is, in John's language, recreation. You know, God breathed, and man became a living soul. And the Holy Spirit <clears throat> is breathed upon us, and we have life. On the other hand, if we fail to have the life, the gift of the Holy Spirit, we fall outside of the presence of God. And there's nothing worse that can happen to you, right? 
Psalms 51.1 says, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, we pray. You know, this was Cain who, who uh, said, you know, that I cannot bear being cast out of the presence of God. Welcome, Miguel. You missed some wonderful chili. <clears throat> the Gospel of John tells us quite that, that uh, I, when Jesus says, I live and you shall live also. And the means that we have life is through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the source of life. It brings, or He brings, whole life, unhindered life, indestructible life, everlasting life. So the life, the pneuma, the spirit that we have in Christ is eternal life. Do we have eternal life apart from the gift of the Holy Spirit? Are we innately immortal? Yes. And if you answer yes, it's a lie from the devil. (laughs) But other than that, it's a good idea. Because that's what the Gnostics would say. Uh, They would say, oh yeah, that we have eternal, that our innate immortal soul is a little piece of God and our body is constricting our, you know, soul, and we cast off this mortal coil, and we spring forth. That's the lie. And what John is countering is the, the, this idea of a, a disincarnate Christianity. We are surrounded by the Gnostic disincarnate. Christianity, but that's always what we'll be surrounded by. That's just the human tendency. That's Plato, but <clears throat> you know, Plato is just summarizing pagan religion and human tendencies. But that's what philosophy is. I, in my estimation, and as you know, I do qualify that, but I think you can do the history of philosophical thought, and it always tends toward the disincarnate, toward the mind's eye. And I would make exceptions to that, but rare exceptions. And the exceptions that I would make are very specific. That, in fact, I think I would claim without uh, that, that those who do not fall into that category are consciously uh, fighting the notion of a disincarnate philosophy. Ludwig Wittgenstein, as you know, is one that I would say doesn't fit the category, but. Wittgenstein is himself making the journey toward Christ, whether he ever got there, at least he was on the journey, and the thing that he sees in his contemporaries and in philosophy, this is his criticism, is this Platonic disincarnate tendency, and what he's attempting to do, he tells us in his diaries, is to give us a philosophical understanding that accords with a theological understanding. And so I would just put Wittgenstein as one of the, a theological thinker. I don't mean to remove him from philosophy, but I think that a, a philosophy rightly done will be one that's grounded in a theological understanding. And so that's very much what I think is happening with him. And he would be uh, one of others, but... 
Psalms 104 9 says, we talked about this, you know, that in the Old Testament, there is not really a strong concept of even life after death in the early portion of the Bible. Uh, when thou hides thy face, they are dismayed, or you can say they are ashamed. When they, thou takest away thy breath, which is the same word for spirit, they die and return to dust. Thou sendest forth thy breath, spirit, and they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. So we've talked about a Greek and a Hebrew understanding of life you know john is going to talk about the the in the gospel the word and the words of life the truth that for the greeks truth is of an immutable impersonal uh mode for the hebrews uh it's personal and so the word of god the truth of god the spirit of god is a direct expression of god you do not know the Father except through the Son, John says. Wow, that's heavy. But don't forget it in your theology. Can you get to the Father apart from the Son? We're doing apologetics, right? Can you get to the Father apart from the Son? John says you can't. Much of apologetics says, well, of course you can. Uh, do we know God in His essence? Through Christ. Now that may sound like an abstract question. Or do we only know God in a kind of economy of redemption and we don't know who he is in the imminent trinity? Well, that's what idolatry is. I think that's what idolatry is. That it's God removed from us, that Christ is, is pictured as some sort of icon, but not the revelation of who God is in his essence. John says, if you know the Son, you know the Father. And he, he you know, obviously he's echoing what is, you know, the idea of Thomas. If you've seen, uh, you know, in the, the, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus says to Thomas. So, there is a failure of thought, a failure of language that gets carried over into Christianity. You know, think here of the difference between circumcision and baptism. That in circumcision, you have the sign of something, but not what it's supposed to signify. There is the sense that people think of language and human experience like that. Oh, it's just a system of signs and none, the reality is missing. That's Gnosticism. Think here in term baptism. Baptism is when you bring the thing that is signified. Is baptism a sign? Well, it's a not simply a sign, but it is tied to the thing that it's signified. We could say the same thing about the word, which is Christ. Is Christ simply a word from God that is in some way a secondary emanation? Well, that's the Gnostics again. Don't get... Gnosticism and Christianity mixed up. So, uh, an empty lie leaves you abiding in death, John says. The fullness of the truth, you are abiding, and then I'm using the language here we talked about last week, of abiding, our abode, uh, the place that we inhabit, that we live. And the picture is that, uh, you know, John says, 
His, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as, as it has taught you, you abide in him. Um, you've probably done the Plato stuff. But let me give you some more heresy here. Uh, this is uh, uh, Jürgen Moltmann. The yearning for the next world took place took the place of the messianic hope. God's spirit was no longer viewed as the source of life. It was now the spirit who redeems the soul from the prison of the mortal body. But in popular piety, right down to the present day, the conflict between soul and body pushes out the conflict between the transitory world of death and the coming world of eternal life. What Moltmann is pointing to is the common... You know, understanding of Christianity today is still Gnostic. It's still Platonic. Um, this is James McClendon. At a, uh, the image of God in Scripture is not to be found in a designated state. Now, this, in other words, here is the departure from a Platonic Christianity. We imagine that being a Christian, oh, I will achieve some static place you know, that's immovable. So we imagine that, you know, even in the way that we talk about salvation, it tends to be static. It's a designated state. He says that's not what it is, but it's a set task. Being a Christian, being saved, involves us in action. It's not static, it's dynamic. It's not an ontic level enjoyed but an ideal to be realized. We are realizing it. We're saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. So uh, I'm saying all of this that we have to get a picture of human nature that accommodates the reality, the full reality of the divine inhabiting human nature. Uh, this Maybe I shouldn't do this. You guys are up to some heavy stuff, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. Our experience of Jesus in history, this is Ted Peters, and the Holy Spirit in the church is an experience of God actually present. To turn it around, our experience of God is countered with God's experience of us. The event of salvation consists inter alia in the incorporation of an alienated creation history into the divine life proper. Okay, that was too much. The, the idea here is that, uh, the, that God is open, right? In other words, the static, platonic, Gnostic God that we get in so much of classical theology is not a God that is open to experience, that is closed to experience. And if, if God is that way, then how is it that God can reveal himself? Well, in that understanding, God doesn't actually reveal his essence. We only, you know, we, we are in some way pointed to that essence. But what John is saying, what is revealed is not something about God, not propositions about God. God himself as spirit is given to us through Christ. So God's word is not something separate. God's spirit is not something separate. Christ is not something separate from who God is. Um, 
May, this is Carl Bart. This is even worse in terms of complication, but I'll say it and then I'll try to explain it. Bart sees God as the subject, object, and predicate of the revelatory act, the revealing God, the event of revelation, and the effective presence of revelation. That is, when we talk about revelation, we often think of this as revealing facts or revealing propositions, you know. Uh, That's not the idea. It's God that's revealed. God is in the revelation. And that's precisely the language of John here. That, you know, in the Son, you know the Father. There is no separation. You know the truth and you abide in the truth, and abiding in the truth, you abide in God. Um, okay, you did that fine. Let me make, I'll step it up a little bit. We'll increase the level of difficulty. This is Jungle. Since God is self-related, he can be world-related. The reiteration as God's relation to us is the correspondence to God's relatedness Analogia relationis. Now that should strike some chords with you. What is he displacing? Analogiantis. He's saying it's not analogiantis, it's analogia relationis. It's a phrase that is there in Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I think Bonhoeffer's whole dissertation is developing this notion. Uh, That is that God is self-related in the Trinity and he in, in being related in the Trinity, there is an open relationship. Since you got that, I'll step it up one more. The Holy Spirit, this is me. The Holy Spirit is the reiteration within us of God's self-relation. By definition, the word does the work of reiteration. Reiteration has the idea of repetition. Repetition is not a bad thing. Unless you compulsively repeat an emptiness. The dog returns to its vomit. The pig returns to its wallow. Sin is a compulsive repetition of the same thing. But what is the, the form of repetition? Is repetition, per se, the sickness that plagues us? I know you're all, we, we all have this compulsion to repeat. But is that our problem? The compulsion to repeat? The way I just said it, that's not the problem, that's the answer. The difference between a sinful repetition of the same thing and taking up the word and God of God and walking with it is that we reiterate then the fullness of life in and through the word of God. There is the purpose of the uh, the idea of repetition. So we walk as He walked. We uh, we become. And this is the you know the idea here at the end of this phrase that we're born again into righteousness. Another way of saying this, the the Holy Spirit implots our story with Christ. So we've talked about it. It's not a propositional static uh, word in a platonic form. 
but it's a dynamic narrative unfolding of a story in which we then are participating in the story, the narrative, the the narrative reality begun by Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the one who joins us to that story, who enables us to participate in that narrative. Um, So God's relationship to the world is, well, I won't do this. We're, We're getting too carried away. Uh, this is Jungle again, but Jungle is, is very interesting on this. But what he's describing here is that who God's, God is in his essence, uh, you know, in, uh, is who he is in the economy of redemption. You've heard the language imminent trinity and economic trinity. Uh, the economic trinity is God revealing himself in the acts of redemption. Is that some sort of secondary aspect of who God is? And what John is saying is, no, that's who God is in, in his essence. Um, so there, what I'm describing to you is, this is not just a false teaching that existed with John. When I went to school, and when Faith went to school, that the, the way that we learned Christianity was that we read the Bible and we get at the propositional content of the Bible. You stack those propositions up. That's called theology. You organize it. Oh, that's systematic theology. Uh, And voila, if you believe the doctrines and the propositions, then you're a good Christian. I don't think that's any different than current... It may be alive and well at some places that will go unnamed. A lot of places. And maybe, yeah. The, the, and so what, I'm, what John's doing, what I'm describing, uh, is the opposite of this idea of attaining a static propositional truth. Christ is a person. The truth is personal. A narrative reality that is unfolding in Christ in the Spirit. See, this is the the work of the Spirit. You've been anointed with the truth. The truth is a person. You've been anointed with the presence of the person of God in your life who's guiding you into all truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. So that he's equating, John's going to equate God with love, uh, he's going to equate God with truth. Uh, it's not that we know a truth about God, but we know God in the truth that's given to us in the Spirit. So the Word is something that God both says and does. Um, so, you know, if you hit, I think even Karl Barth fails us here. Uh, you know, we could contrast Carl H. Henry. Carl F. H. Henry was sort of the the premier theologian of the previous generation. And he reduced the words of Scripture to their propositional content. The counter to that might have been Karl Barth, who emphasized the fact that God gives us himself in the word, and yet he tended to deverbalize it. It was a word without any definitive content or place. And so what I'm saying is the word is both something God says, the word is spoken, and something God does. 
So it's a definitive word given to us in Christ in Scripture. Uh, John says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Boy, that's over and against the whole tradition of imagining that we can have God the Father apart from the mediating special revelation of Christ. I think my fr- the phrase that, uh, you know, uh, Rahner's rule, almost if, you know, the Rahner's rule can be a, a, a bit of a heresy, but I think it need not be. You know, the two phrases, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, the economic trinity is the eminent trinity. They're very close in, in content. The economy of salvation, uh, in the economy, God's internal relationship is open. To us, And so in Eastern Orthodoxy, they get this in the notion of deification. You're familiar with that? And all I understand that to mean is participation in the Trinity. God, Moltmann says, suffers with us. God suffers from us. God suffers for us. It is this experience of God that reveals the triune God. A disincarnate form of Christianity is necessarily dismissive of suffering. And if you are dismissive of suffering, you're denying death, you cannot love the brother. That's is that too strong? This is I've been reading or thinking about James Cone. Uh, James Cone is a black theologian who grew up in the period, you know, when actually he's probably about, he's probably a little older than we are, but when we grew up, it was sort of like living in an apartheid in this country. And so uh, he writes a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. I was, Faith and I were listening to NPR. While you people were watching football, we were listening to NPR. Uh, And on NPR, they were talking about the lynching that took place in Marion, Indiana. And there's, it's a, a, a shocking, you know, photographs that come out of that uh, lynching. And then uh, from those photographs, uh, the poem, have you heard Strange Fruit that Billie Holiday sings? Strange Fruit Blowing in the Wind. She's talking about lynching. And, and Cone then writes a book on comparing the cross of Christ to the lynching tree. I don't know if that how that strikes you. Uh, I, I think it's a it's a it's a gripping parallel that I think we often fail to make. Is the cross so different than a lynching? And is a lynching so different than the cross? In other words, I I think that theologically we've done something to the cross so that in some way it's not uh, you know, we can we can sing about and talk about being at the foot of the cross and we put him there and all that. But I'm afraid what we're actually thinking is a kind of, uh, you know, idea that he's suffering and it's sure a good thing he's suffering because his suffering saves us. It's sure a good good thing he died because we need him to die. And so the picture of atonement is one in which God is doing the violence to Christ and Cone's point, it numbs us to violence and suffering. And out of that, you get a Christianity 
that has no uh, empathy for the suffering. There is, in fact, you know, th- this uh, the idea of a peaceable Christianity, the idea of doing peace. Well, if God does violence in the atonement, is there an original peace that we have access to? I'm, I'm dismissing a theory of the atonement here, but saying in this wrong understanding of the atonement, we get racism, we get violence, uh, you know, we get oppression of women, we get, I think it's all there in this misunderstanding that God suffers with us. And that's Cohn's point. And he, he makes a very harsh statement that he says the Christianity of white America is the Antichrist. It's the Christianity of the Antichrist. When I first read that, I thought, you know, I, I and then I, the more I read that, the more I think about it, I think, yeah, that's it. Because if you can't, you know, if you look at that pinch picture of the lynching, and you can't see that it lines up with what's happened with the cross. In some way, we've numbed ourselves. We've created a religion in this false Christianity, the religion that John is describing, that in fact is not a refusal of evil, but enables us to do evil. So that a Christianity gone bad is worse than just a simple paganism. I believe I'm not departing from John here because that's what John's warning them against. These antichrists, the antichrist has been unleashed on the world and the antichrist then looks like an angel of light. But it's a devil, you know, the devil from hell is is among you. He's saying, you know, the the church is in great danger. Uh, So what does the spirit do for us? You know, the Spirit leads you into all truth. The Spirit enables us to go on in the same way that Christ goes on. The Spirit is at work. You know, think of the incarnation of Christ. Every stage of the incarnation we encounter the Holy Spirit. Can we talk about our own incarnation? If our sinful tendency is toward being disincarnate, toward departure, toward not being there for the brother and the sister that's suffering, The Spirit enables us to suffer with the other. The Spirit enables us to take up the cross. This is, uh, William Frazier brings, he creates another word. I I, I don't know if I, I'm surely I didn't make the word disincarnate. No, I didn't. He gives us the word excarnation, meaning the same thing as disincarnation. This word points directly to the dynamic operative in man's refusal to be man. Carnal existence is punctuated with limitation, weakness, and pain. In a word, flesh is the dwelling place of death. More radically than anything else, the incarnation of death explains the excarnation of man. That is, in believing in this disincarnate Christ, they're denying death. They're denying the reality of death. And that's always at some level what I think we would do. That death, then, instead of being the final enemy, is in some way denied as a reality. And so John, interestingly, at the end of the book of John, and I'm bringing this in here because 
I think that it's always present. He says, little children, this is the last thing he's going to say, little children, guard yourselves from idols. I think these antichrists are posing a kind of idolatrous Christianity that would once again do what idolatry does. You know, idolatry is man's refusal to be man. Idols offer an illusory exit from the land of death and incarnation. And that's what this false Christianity is doing. Um, I'll skip to the end here, but we've talked about the importance of abiding. The last thought here in the in this verse that is he's going to be talking about, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. We've talked about righteousness. It's not imputed. It's a real-world righteousness. Isn't that clear from this verse? If it's imputed, how could you practice it? Righteousness is a practice that we put into place. Righteousness is connected to the transformation of new birth. Um, And we did this in the Gospel. You know, rebirth is thematic in the Old Testament. This is what the promise of righteousness was there. This is why Nicodemus is rebuked by Jesus when he talks about being born again. Nicodemus says, you mean I must return to my mother's womb? And Jesus says, you, a teacher of Israel, you do not understand this basic concept? And once you go back through the Old Testament, you recognize, oh, this is thematic in the Old Testament. New birth, being reborn again, being, you know, think of all the characters Jacob renamed as Israel, of uh, the Psalms, create in me a clean heart and, and renew a right spirit. First Samuel talks the call of Samuel in the temple is pictured as a rebirth toward God. Isaiah pictures the themes of creation, fruitfulness birth, sin, regeneration. So it's, it's thematic, and I think it's important we, buy, re, we connect practicing righteousness and rebirth. That there is a, another connection that talks about an enfleshed and embodied righteousness, not some sort of imputed righteousness that has to do with our relationship in a theoretical sense with God or a legal sense, but a real world righteousness in which we are, you know, practicing this, in which we, uh, it is, it is a, defined here in very much the way the judgment scenes in the, New, in, in the New Testament are pictured, that those who know this righteousness do this righteousness, and it, shows itself in the things that they've done. That's what I've got. Any comments or questions? When you were talking about the cross and a lynching tree, I've not read the book, but the way you were describing it made me, like, kind of made some connecting points of the Jesus died so I don't have to, and through history how that is scapegoating and then how we have that same ideology and I don't even know if that's the right word. Yes, yes, yes. We have that same approach to Mm -hmm. life 
we have the other has to die so we don't have to and in slavery it's very evident and like slavery is done in the name of God at least in America it's done in the name of God so that oh well we have to keep these people enslaved because it is they're working to God because we're able to make money and do all these things for God yada 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 and it's all in the name of God and oh well we must kill these slaves or this one rebellious slave to be an example for the others and I mean that's the exact same thing that the Pharisees were doing oh we need to kill Jesus to be an example for the others because he keeps making everybody else get all riled up and if we don't silence him nobody else will be silenced so let's kill this one uh-huh. to save the others but the others is really the self yeah you got it you said it well yeah that that what Christ exposes is the scapegoating mechanism you know this is Rene Girard but you you don't you don't have to know about Girard to understand that something's gone wrong in the Christianity and I assume all those, you know, southern white people standing at the foot of the lynching tree are good good Christian folk. There's something gone wrong with their religion if they can't in some way recognize the evil that they're doing, the scapegoating that they're doing. And I think what you what you described is, yeah, precisely their religion is Christ died so that I don't have to. It is a continuation of scapegoating and almost an encouragement of scapegoating. I mean, I, I don't... Uh, so that uh, the return to a Christus Victor understanding is... No, actually what Christ did was overcome that sort of evil and enables us to de- identify with the oppressed if we only can put ourselves in the place of the oppressor, if we, you know, if we can't understand that when we turn away refugees, when we turn away the poor, when we refuse, you know, to be open to the stranger, that our Christianity has gone bad, that we're standing at the foot of the lynching tree, we're standing at the foot of the cross, and we're egging on those who are nailing the nails through the hands of Christ. There is an evil Christianity that is of the Antichrist. And I think we need, that's what John's doing. I'm just doing John here. Uh, we need to be able to say, this is what this evil Christianity looks like. This is what these people do. This is the way that they think. And I'm not saying that there's that it's a static thing. We're calling people out of that. We're calling people to be able to recognize, you know. And this is the strange thing about a lynching tree. You know, living here in Little Dixie in Missouri. With the racists all around us. That can't understand why black lives matter should be an emphasis. Because I think that actually we can we can almost see ourselves at the foot of the lynching tree sometimes easier than we can recognize that the being at the foot of the cross is the same thing. And so it, it's a powerful parallel that I think brings back to us what the death of Christ is all about and what we don't want. You know, we don't want a Christianity that in some way... Uh, 
enslaves, oppresses, crucifies as a necessity. That's precisely what Christianity is undoing. I'm just saying what you said. What do we do then in the face of evil Christianity? Because it's a lot easier... Oh, John's saying it. It's a lot easier to think, oh, John said it, Jesus said it, but then we say it, and it's totally different. You know? I guess maybe it's not different, but it is hard. I I don't know what to do, other than just keep doing (laughs) I'm not... I'm not... I never, you know, presume to draw a line and say, well, now you folks is out and you folks is in. So we're not in the business of line drawing because that's already been done for us. The heretics will always draw the line. They'll always say, you're out. Uh, But all we can do is to continue to be inclusive and call people, you know, to an authentic Christianity in the spirit of John. So it's not necessarily our responsibility to um, point the finger, but more of a responsibility to point the finger inward and examine ourselves and draw people into the community with us. Yeah, yeah. Actively avoid oppression and violence ourselves. And hoping that that invites others into it as well. That's a note to self. Yes, note to self is a note for everybody. Mm-hmm. So maybe that, like we would, the way that we would call out the evil or expose the evil is just by doing, doing the, the opposite of that. Like doing, doing what we're supposed to be doing, and then maybe working towards a reversal of that just by following. What what John's pointing at here, like doing doing the righteousness that they're supposed to be doing, yeah. you know. Yeah, on the night that they lynched those two men, there was a third uh, he, uh, young man that was sixteen years old, and they they had the noose around his neck, and some lady in the crowd raised her voice <coughs> and says, "Wait a minute, he had nothing." To, and actually, you know, the, what whatever happened, you know, there was a supposed rape that never happened but she said he had nothing to do with this they took the noose off and let him go his name was Cameron I think it was James James Cameron and he he uh, uh, founded the uh, uh, America's Black Holocaust Museum Hmm. Uh, and of course that event was definitive of his life but but the point is, yeah, one one little lady in this huge crowd saved his life. It doesn't take much, you know. I don't know. Maybe the crowd could have turned on her. That's always the danger, and with a group that's scapegoating someone, if you stand with those that are being scapegoated, you could very well end up being lynched too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the danger. And of course, I think we're that to do that. I mean, think here, don't, you know, I think we all need to be realistic. This is Peter. I think Peter is given to us as an example, not because he's weak and cowardly, but because, in fact, he's the, he's the, the leader of the group. He's the best they got. 
And Peter crumbles in the face of that sort of opposition. And so I think our t- I think we all understand that cowardice within us. And we understand, oh, to be able to do something like that would take the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're not up to it ourselves. But that's why we have each other, and that's why we have the gift of, you know, that. And so I think that, as Sharon's saying, we... You gotta, you gotta recognize this evil within. It's something we're all capable of. Uh, just because we want to get along, you know, we don't want to stick out. You know, in Japan, you don't want to be the nail that gets pounded down. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I think especially corporately that we can strengthen one another in doing this very hard thing that's called Christianity. Let's read the final section. Uh, Jordan, you want to read uh, from 25? From chapter 2, 25? Mm-hmm. Just that verse? Uh, yeah, that sounds good. I'm not there yet. But... Okay. <laughs> <coughs> yeah. Okay. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Um, I, you know, I don't need to reiterate that, but the whole context is that, in other words, here's the first word in our triangulation, uh, that what we're talking about is a quality of life, uh, a enduring life that is directly connected with the gift of the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Spirit is the means to eternal life. Um. And then, uh, Evan. Um, We're on 27? 26. 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Go ahead. ahead. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. I don't know about your translations. I normally don't like the New International. I don't know why I continue to use it, but occasionally they come up with a word I like. And and here, they use the word counterfeit. And I think that's what we're actually talking about. We're not talking about, you know, the devil with horns and hooves. But we're talking about an apparent angel of light, preachers of righteousness, people who know the truth and claim to know Christ. It's this counterfeit Christianity. But he's saying, you can tell the difference because you have been taught. You've not, you're not deceived by the lie. You're led by the Spirit. You're abiding in Him. And so, if we're in this tight koinonia fellowship, walking in the light. When the liars come and the Antichrist start to speak up, we can recognize him through the three tests. They're, they're heretics in regard to doctrine. They're Gnostics. Theirs is a disincarnate Christianity. They're heretics in regard to the fellowship because they would divide, expel. And they're heretics in regard to their ethics because they don't really walk in the light. They're hateful. They're mean. 
they uh, they might lynch you. All right, and then uh, verse twenty-eight. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And we don't need to go back, but John's using shame. <laughs> you know, you abide in Christ, you're not ashamed. You're clothed in Christ, you're not ashamed. The picture is that if you're clothed in the white robes of righteousness, the problem of shame and death is resolved. That's a real lived difference that we need not to live our lives in the, you know, with the axis of shame and pride. Shame is a controlling thing in people's lives that can be hidden but when Christ returns, it will no longer, your, your, you know, the fake robe of righteousness, the thing that you've sewn together for yourself, your own pride, the arrogance, it's not going to amount to much. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be exposed. Uh, and then, uh, verse 29, uh, amazing. That he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. There's the another test. He's righteous. He, you know, uh, that. Uh, how do you tell? Well, he's saying he's antichrist. They don't practice righteousness. They don't walk in the light. Uh, but we, if we practice this thing, if we if we put it on, if we, and again, you know, it's just right wising in James McClendon's picture. That it's walking righteously. It's not a static uh, thing. It's uh, an unfolding uh, idea that we put into practice. And so the right wising, living rightly, and the new birth are uh, tied in together. That's a, that was a short section. Is that good enough? Faces, good enough. All right. Any any other comments, questions, debates, disagreements? It's pretty simple, but I think some dots were connected. Like I don't know, just who I am as a person is very. We have to stop it and very rah rah. Fight the power, rebellious, whatever. And it's really conflicting to have this disposition and then, okay, but peace. How do we do this? How is How can we actually carry out change in a way that's peaceable? Because really what I want to do is force these people who are doing these things to stop what they're doing. But I can't force anybody to stop what they're doing. But the only way to overcome evil is through the refusal to participate in it. And refusing to participate in it, I'm stopping it, maybe in a small way, but I want like, you know, I want to just force it to stop. It. But which, I can't do that. Which that's the that's the temptation. And unfortunately to you know, James Cone, that's the, his own failure in a black liberation theology. Is that his theology was it sounds a lot like Malcolm X. Um that uh, we can't we can't force this thing, or we end up doing evil 
in order to combat evil. Well, wait a minute, that's why everybody does evil. They always do evil to fight evil. And so, you know, well, yeah, I had to do it. You know, I had to get revenge. I probably told you about uh, a guy in my, uh, he did his Ph.D. dissertation on people on death row. He went around and interviewed them all. And he said that they consistently, you know, they'd mur- they're all killers. They'd murdered somebody. But in describing how they, why they murdered somebody, he said they always used the same language, that they talked about a righteous rage. In this righteous rage, they had to do it. They, it was, you know, an act of righteousness on their part. That gets at it. That makes sense what Jesus said. Their righteousness. That when you hate somebody, you kill them. Because the root of hate is righteous fury. But then see if we see people actually literally killing them. To, to my, I mean, uh, this is so simple, it's stupid. <laughs> but how do, how do we depart from evil? I think by, you know, that if we embrace a completely peaceable Christianity that is not oppressive, that is not racist, that's obvious, right? Those things are evil, but why can't people see that? Because they've bought into a theology that makes those things in some way a necessity. And so if, I think if we're doing theology rightly, we can equate violence and oppression and you know hatred, as John does, with sin. That's just sin. But in some way, our theology has failed us so that we can't see it when it's right in front of us. So the righteous rage that results in the lynching tree, it's the same righteous rage that put Christ on the cross. It was the good zealots, it was the Pharisees, it was the people who, you know, were well informed that crucified him. So evil is the best that we can do. I I mean, our morality is our immorality. Our righteousness is our evil. Our patriotism is our evil. Our love, you know, you can just go on right on through. All the things that we love and cherish that become, well, no, that's precisely what makes evil. That's what constitutes evil. So, the, the I mean, I should end on a positive note. That having seen that, we can, we, we recognize, know that love and peace, then, is an absolute. That we never, we never relinquish the peace. That we are completely imperturbable. In, I mean, we should be. I'm not, but I would hope to be. And maybe if you guys help me, you know, that's, maybe I'll get imperturbable. Because I'm more like Sharon. I'd like to choke somebody. You know. But... <laughs> But but we, we understand that we need training in righteousness. And that's what he's saying. Practice this thing. I need practice, you know. Help me here. So I think we all need practice to, to learn how to do this thing. So it's not an easy thing. But once we get the ideal, then we can then we can try practicing. I I didn't say you, I, 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 <laughs> I put words in your mouth. Ha, 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 ha.